I just want to give an opportunity uh, before I begin. If anyone was moved by what Becky said, you can go and join the kids' work. <laughs> and, just, and, and just, you know, just take that all in. Um, but yeah, thank, it's great to be here. We were here a couple of weeks ago. We met a number of you then. Um, but it's great to be back. And uh, yeah, I'm speaking on Acts 4, 23 through to 31. Uh, so if you've got a Bible, grab it and we'll, um, we'll read that passage now together before I crack on. So Acts 4, 23 through 31. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power, what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word, the word of God boldly. When we read that passage, it's, it's actually quite an amazing passage, isn't it? It's quite an amazing prayer um, to pray. And I have a confession to make. When I started preparing, when I was reading this, I really struggled to get into the passage. I really struggled to be moved by it. Um, And as I was prepping more, I realised it's because it's it's not really an appealing prayer to pray. It's a hard prayer. It, It speaks of the hard reality of suffering for Jesus on a daily basis for the sake of his gospel and for his glory. And my heart basically said, I don't want to pray that. Much less do I want to preach on it, because then you really have to grapple with it. Um, But as we go through it this morning, it's it's always the reality that as we look to Jesus and we look to the gospel with open hearts, God changes us and he softens us and he changes the posture of our hearts. And he shows us the reasons why we don't want to pray these things, the reasons why we don't want to suffer. And we all know why we don't want to suffer. But he makes it appealing. He makes the gospel more appealing than anything that this world could offer us. And so, um, you know, I'm encouraged that, that we'll go out of this place more excited to share the gospel, whatever the cost may be. Because more and more we want to see our friends and family come to know him. So, um, just before I get into it, because Emily ran through my sermon yesterday and she looked at me and she said, got to cut some stuff out of this. <laughs> so I'm just going to go through, the first, the, the, through my points so that you've got a bit, of a, a bit of a map to guide you. So the first point, we're not the main character in our lives. Secondly, Christ's victory was to bring us intimacy with God. And thirdly, we're called to pray for courage, not comfort. So... <clears throat> We've just heard um, what's happened. We know Peter and John have been out there. They've been praying. They've been performing miracles in the power of God. And they've been under attack. They've been arrested. They've been called before the council. They've been persecuted. But they come back to a family. As I was preparing this, I was just reminded of the Lord of the Rings. Um, Has anyone here read the whole saga, the Lord of the Rings, the books? Yeah, I tried when I was younger. I never got past a third of the second book. 
but um, the films are great. So I just, I just go through those instead, and I feel cultured. Um, <laughs> but um, the first book, of course, is called The Fellowship of the Ring. And there's a main character throughout The Lord of the Rings called Frodo, and he's frankly a very disappointing person. Um, especially in the film, he's just a weak little, and I think, why do I want to watch you for three hours at a go? <laughs> and, you know, he's unappealing. He doesn't make me want to read the books. He doesn't make me want to watch the films. But um, Tolkien is cleverer than my critique gives him credit. You see, the book, the first book, is called The Fellowship of the Ring. It's not about Frodo, really. Frodo's the one that carries the ring, and he carries the burden. But actually, it's about a team of people who choose to give up their lives to one another. They choose to pursue something that's beyond themselves because they've been given a vision. They know that there's evil. They know that they're the ones that have to take responsibility. And so Frodo and his character and his weakness doesn't carry the story at all. It's his friends. It's the people that are, that are with him. It's a fellowship that are committed to going against the evil. And here in Acts 4, we see this same family, this same fellowship, a group of people that are devoted to bringing good news, no matter what the cost. They want to bring liberation for the poor and freedom from captives. Verse 23, right at the beginning, says, Peter and John went back to their own people. And when it says their own people here, it's not that the Jews, the, the, the high and mighty said, oh, go back to your own people, back to the slums, Peter and John. No, it's, it's not that they had to retreat to their, to their place, but they went back to their own, to their family, to the people that loved them, to the people that they loved. And um, they endured persecution together. It wasn't just Peter and John out there and they came in for a quick pit stop and then they go out. No, they're a family walking together into, um, into the face of the enemy, into the glory that God had for them. And so they went back to their families to tell them everything that happened, to encourage them, because that family carried them and they supported one another. So here we are, we're looking at the family of God, a fellowship of believers that are bound by God's spirit and by God's purpose and his mission on their lives. And they know that their story isn't actually about them. It's not about what they've done today. It's not bound up in Peter or in John or in any one of them. It's bound up in Christ. And they're equals, walking together, gifted differently, but walking together to bring God's good news. And this prayer really is an insight to the engine room of their success. We see their beating heart, their trade secret. Verse 24, they say, it says, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God, and they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. It wasn't about them. It isn't about me, it isn't about you. They didn't lift their voices and say, Peter and John, tell us again the miracle. Tell us again how brave you were, how witty you were, how cleverly you spoke against them. They said, Sovereign Lord, enter the main character. Now I work um, for a company called Sovereign, and unfortunately they've taken the Lord's title in vain. You see, the dictionary definition of sovereign, in fact, every definition in vain, the dictionary definition of sovereign runs one that exercises supreme authority within a limited sphere. I think it's an aspirational name for them. I've seen their sphere, it is in fact limited, and their authority is definitely not supreme. But you know, I enjoy working there. Um, <laughs> but when we look at that dictionary definition, and then we look at God, we think, well, that doesn't fit either. God does exercise supreme authority, but his limited sphere is the entirety of our known reality and everything beyond yeah. it. Yeah. There's nothing beyond his control. Yeah. Nothing is outside of his reach. Yeah. Nothing is done without him allowing it to happen. 
their Lord, your Lord, my Lord, if you know Jesus as your own here, is sovereign over your life. Even me standing here breathing is only because Christ upholds this universe. He gives me breath in my lungs. And it's precisely this God that these followers of Jesus turn to with confidence. They turn to the main character. Psalm 104 says he makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messengers, flaming fire his ministers. He established the earth on its foundations. They know they are servants of this God. And they give him the glory when things go well. And they run to him when things don't. And right now they're under attack. Yes, many people have come to know Jesus, thousands of people, and it's amazing, but they face incredible opposition. The high priest. Now, to get a context, the high priest in Jerusalem was the top dog in the Jewish church, right? So in in Israel, the high priest had a lot of weight. The elders and the scribes, so again, the supporting councils, everyone in Jerusalem, the heart of the Jewish faith was against these Christians, The spiritual elite, the people that people would count on for having authority and wisdom, have told them to stop, to silence this heresy about a man called Jesus. The man they claim to be God, a man they claim rose from the dead. But they cannot be silent about him. Only a few months before this, many of these Christians would have fallen over themselves to have an audience with the high priest, to have been spoken to by the elders and the scribes. They'd have been honoured. But now they call them heretics. And wouldn't that just suck the breath out of your lungs? Wouldn't that leave you in an impossible situation? Surely it would, it would have them in confusion and fear. But we read this story and it doesn't. And the reason why is because their authority comes from the sovereign God. The one who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Their ruler is over every other ruler. Their high priest is now sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's in heaven and his spirit lives in them. It's remade them, it's freed them from the bonds of sin. It's shown them the meaning of the long-held traditions in Israel. It's brought them into the glory of the king's courts. There is no higher call they could have. No higher authority to commission them than that. So when the high priest of all Israel walks up to you and tells you to stop, they say, well, who are you? Who are you to tell me what to do when my God has spoken? They know who they are. Now this week, and and for the previous few months actually, I've been working on a bungalow in Basingstoke in South Ham. It's a a lovely area. It's actually quite nice, it's quiet. I've enjoyed myself, but we've had to do everything. It It was an absolute wreck, this house. So we've replaced the ceilings, we've plastered the walls, we've changed all the pipework, new kitchen, new bathroom, new heating system. And it's been me and one other guy predominantly, a guy called John, who's an old boy. He's not as old as some of the boys in this church, but he is a, he's, he's older than me. And uh, he's, an, he's an ex-brickie. And he's a great guy. He's working out his retirement because he's bored at home. And uh, sometimes he forgets my name. So he calls me Cecil. And, <laughs> And he calls me Cecil, weirdly enough, because he had, uncle, he had an uncle called Cyril. But his, uncle, but his brother couldn't remember his uncle's name, so his brother used to call his uncle Cyril Cecil. And John remembers my name by remembering that his brother couldn't say Uncle Cyril's name, so he calls me Cecil. I don't understand John's train of thought, but that's, <laughs> but that's what comes out of his mouth. And then um, sometimes he just forgets my name entirely, and he calls me the boy. 
And so, yeah. So sometimes that's in front of my manager, and she doesn't like it when I'm called the boy. And I said, well, I don't mind, Jade. Um, I very much am the boy. I'm younger than all of his children, and he knows everything, and I know very little. He knows that I'm a, I'm a, I'm a youth worker that's picked up a drill, basically. <laughs> and um, every time I do something, he's like, you've got no push, boy. I was like, no, I haven't, John. All right, I'm sorry. I'm just here to work pipe, and you make me do all these heavy things. So, um, <laughs> so I'm very much learning what's going on. Anyway, I'm telling you all of this because uh, part of this house we needed to renew the front door. So it had an old wooden door, which was quite nice, really. But anyway, we had to get rid of it. And uh, so we had a new front door, a composite PVC thing, and we needed a side light. So John says to me, right, you're going to have to go and order the side light. You've got to learn how to do this. And I thought, OK, sure. And he said, I'll give you the measurements. You just go off to Basingstoke Glass and order it. And I thought, fine. But in my head, I was thinking, I don't know what a side light is, John. But never mind, I'm sure the people at Basingstoke Glass do. So I popped down there with the measurements, and I was chatting to the guy, and I said, this is what we need. And the guy said, oh, that doesn't make sense. And I said, well, that's a shame, isn't it? He said, can you draw it? And I said, no, no, I can't. I don't, I don't know what I'm ordering. I've just been given some measurements. So he said, all right. He wasn't a glazier himself. So he said, I'll, just, I'll get the boss to call you back, because he should know what's going on. So a couple of days later, I was out sunning myself, washing out a bucket, and uh, the boss called me, and he said, right, I'm calling about this unit that you've ordered. Now, immediately, I'm thinking, I didn't order a unit. I think I ordered a window, because by this time, I talked to John, and he'd explain what a sidelight was. And, um, and he said, right, this unit, do you want a sealed unit or an unsealed unit? And I'm immediately panicking again. I'm thinking, what's an unsealed window? Is that like panes of glass that we then put together and pump the gas in? Or how does this all work? I've got no idea. And uh, then I thought, maybe it's a window in the door. And it, I, just, I just didn't have a clue. But it was at that moment that I remembered my title, The Boy. And I said, listen, I'm just the boy. Let me pass you over to the boss. And, you know, call me Frodo. I'd been given a ring. I had no idea what I was doing. I was relying on other people to help me get there. And here... These believers, they knew they were carrying out a mission, but they also knew it wasn't about them. It wasn't about what they knew and what they didn't know. It was about the one in charge. It was about this sovereign God that they come to. Their confidence didn't come from their ability to evangelize, their knowledge of the scriptures, their ability to win arguments. It came from knowing that their God was there with them. Yeah. Yeah. They knew they were just the boy. Their Lord had given them an errand and they were carrying out his orders in the confidence of his presence with them. That is what inspired them. They knew, I'm here, God's here, but he has raised me up to be his witness. Now, when you read the, the Gospels, we see that Jesus uh, and his life caused a lot of, it caused a bit of a stir, let's say. He, he was all about creating something new. It was something revolutionary, and most people couldn't understand it. And it's not that the Old Testament and all the laws and, and all the ritual was a waste of time, but it, it wasn't the final answer. It wasn't the final piece in the puzzle. God had, had put Israel in place to be a witness to the rest of the world, to bring humanity into a more of an understanding of who God was and what he wanted and what intimacy looked like. But it wasn't the final piece. Now, we've read about the elders and the high priests and the scribes that are opposing the Christians, and they knew all of the Old Testament. They knew the laws. They knew how God was meant to work. And they were confused by Jesus. So when Peter and John are opposed, they know they're not the first ones. And so as they pray through the prayer, we come to this passage. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. 
And here they're quoting a psalm. They're quoting Psalm 2. And it's a psalm that David writes as the anointed king of Israel, but as he's pursued by the enemies. David is under duress and he writes this psalm and he asks God, why do the people rage against your anointed? Why do you have a will and yet people not follow it? And we see that play out in David's life, but we also know that this psalm speaks about Jesus. It speaks about Jesus' life, the anointed one who came to be the last king, the king of all kings. And it talks of everything he'd have to endure. And the early church goes on in this prayer and they say, for truly in this city, they were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Jewish elite, they're all here. They're all gathered against Jesus. They're calling for his death, for him to be deposed, thrown out, gotten rid of. And the early church knew that. They knew that if Jesus went through that, and now they're anointed by the Holy Spirit, they're going to have to go through that. They'd met Jesus. We've met Jesus, haven't we? I was preaching this to myself, and I thought, have I met Jesus? I thought, of course I've met Jesus. He, he met me where I was 15 years ago. But somehow we forget. We think, well, I've not walked up to him in a supermarket. I didn't go to a book signing with Jesus. But he lives inside of us. They had met Jesus. They were filled with their, his spirit. We're filled with his spirit. And they understood something that most of the Jews could not understand. Israel had the laws, they had the ceremony, they had the things they had to do in order to enter the courts of God, but they could never really get there. Those things weren't enough. They didn't, they didn't open access to God. There was only one person that could go into the Holy of Holies, and that was once a year. That was the high priest. Once a year he could go into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for Israel's sins. And he'd go in and he'd make sacrifices. But if he had sin on him, if he was unclean, he would be struck down by God's holiness. It was a fearful thing to be the high priest going into that room once a year. It was brutal because God had called them to live a life that was so far above their ability, but it was to show them that God was so far holier than they are, <coughs> that they needed something to bridge that gap. God's promise to Israel was, if you follow me, I'll bless you. And we see that under good kings, David, Solomon, before he goes bad. We see Israel prosper. God is faithful. And under bad kings, we see how Israel diminishes. It gets captured and taken over. And the high priests, the elders, the scribes, the ones that are persecuting these Christians, they're waiting for Israel's return to prominence. They're waiting for that glory to come back. They're waiting for God to lift Israel out from underneath the cosh of Rome and back into victory. They had their eyes fixed on that glory but it was their own glory they were looking for. Instead, Jesus came with God's glory. He came with a self-effacing glory to bring us into his presence without the fear of death so that we could share in a glory that was beyond our imagination. And we can't understand it. Each day I, I go home from church and by Monday I've forgotten that taste of glory. We get glimpses of it, but we so often forget. Peter, who we read about in this passage, writes a letter later on in his life. And in that letter, in 1 Peter 4, he says this. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. There's something going on here, something that we can't fully understand 
We grasp it, but we can't understand. And the Jews at the time, they couldn't understand what was going on. You see, we become so rooted, so grounded here, we forget why we've been put here. Just like the the spiritual elite of Israel, they'd forgotten God's purpose. But Peter, the early church, they'd grasped it. They'd seen Jesus. They'd been remade. The Spirit lives in them. He'd given them a new purpose, a new home, a new glory, God's glory through his Son. And their desire, above all else, was to become more like him. And so they began to be treated like him. God came to earth in Christ and he suffered. He was spat on, his back was torn open, he was rejected by his friends. He suffocated on the cross as a criminal. And why did he do that? To bring us a life that's free from fear. A life that's not bound up in what's going on here and now, not grounded in the security of this world, so that we don't have to carry that baggage that we've spoken about already this morning, all the things that we hold on ourselves. And Jesus is over there and we think, how do I get there? And Jesus says, drop your life. Drop everything you're holding, everything you're worried about. All the things that you think you need, let them go and follow me. It's so hard to do, isn't it? And then he meets us again and he changes our hearts and we think, oh, I don't need all this stuff. He says, yeah, I'll be telling that for years. Cyril, you're you're, you're, you're a slow learner. I say, yes, I know. (laughs) And so I drop it and I move on and then I I go back and pick it up sometimes. (laughs) But he came in this world to give us a glory that's for all eternity. He gave us intimacy with God, unfettered access to the Trinity, the ability to walk into the Holy of Holies and not be struck down, a privileged right to call our God Father and know that he hears our prayers. That is the kingdom of God. And we have a wonderful foretaste now, but in eternity, we will drink it deeply and fully. When that's our goal, when that's what captures our vision, this world becomes of no importance because our eyes are on the next. And the suffering that we have to endure is by the by. This life doesn't matter. It's comfort doesn't matter. Our privilege here doesn't matter. To those that are living for another life, another world... Suffering becomes inconsequential. Now, we need to be careful. It's not that suffering doesn't hurt. It's not that we don't struggle, because we do. And God's given us a family so that when we do suffer, we bear one another up. And Christ, in the Gospels, he wept at suffering. He's angry at death. He hates the way that sin has ravaged this world. But suffering doesn't define us anymore. It doesn't command our paths anymore. And frankly, that's why this prayer didn't appeal to me when I started preparing this sermon. Because I think there's a good part of me that still lives for the glory of this world. All the comforts it has to offer. But as we read this prayer, we see that these Christians pray for courage, not for comfort. Verse 29 says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your work with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. This fellowship, this family of believers, this group of boys running errands for their governor. They didn't just know the right words. They didn't just know how to, how to do worship well. They had an eager desire to keep going. They had a faith in Jesus that his gospel would prevail, that his hope would bring freedom. Yeah. 
And it goes on to say, And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, this wasn't their first taste of the Holy Spirit, but God met them in this place and renewed their faith. God loves it when we call out to them and say, Lord, I want to do your will. I want to live for you above everything else. That's what he desires. And when we call out to him, he meets us where we are. Heaven touched earth in this passage and the earth buckled beneath the sheer weight of God's glory. The earth can't stand the power of its creator. And yet we see the people here are blessed. As the earth quakes beneath their feet, they are filled with power. They are filled with courage because this God has chosen to make his home in their hearts. What are the threats of a council of old men, the high priest of Israel? What are they when the living God is within you? What is fear when the one who made the heavens and the earth and everything in them could destroy that in a single breath and yet he chooses to make his dwelling in you? The Bible describes Satan as a roaring lion. And often we forget about the devil. I forget about the devil. I choose not to think about him. But the Bible says he's a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And here he was coming after them. Through the rulers and the authorities, he was coming after them. But they knew someone greater. There's a story I heard of a man who took his children to London Zoo. Back in the day, back in the 30s. uh, So everything's still very exciting. We've not been ruined by the internet yet. So they get on a train up to Waterloo. And from there they get a bus and take a short work and they get, walk and they get to London Zoo. And there it's, it's just thrilling. They see the monkeys and they see the penguins, they feed them uh, the fish. They gaze in awe at the giraffe as it towers above them. But eventually they get to the enclosure that they really wanted to see, the lions. And there they were, their manes were glorious, shining in the sun, their paws were so big, the children thought it would cover their whole face. But they were asleep and so they waited until one began to stir. And he stretched and his powerful legs stretched out and they were in awe. And then the most terrifying thing happened as he roared, an ear-splitting roar that tore through the children. And they ran to their father and they grabbed onto his legs and they looked up to him. And there was just a wry smile on his face. He was unmoved. You see, the children saw a terrifying lion with his teeth gleaming in the sun, but the father saw a fence. What are the threats of of the enemy when God is sovereign over all? What are the jibes of the devil when we know, yes, he walks about like a prowling lion waiting to devour us, but God has hemmed him in. He is not free and he is not all powerful. He is an evil, but he is kept on a leash and he is waiting to be extinguished. That is the reality. That is why we have boldness to preach. That is why we have boldness to speak to our friends of the gospel. He cannot go where God does not allow him. The the Lord our God filled his people in this passage with courage. He reminded them of who he was. And he breathed into their hearts a reminder of who they were. They were soldiers in his army, commissioned for a purpose. They were not on their own. They were not abandoned by their general or their king. He was there with them, tending to their wounds, reminding of their might in him and that their reward has already been won in Christ. They're not doing this to earn their place. They're doing this because they love their God. The earth shook and they were filled with courage. Courage, not comfort. That was the gift that God gave them. Mm. And again, 
I see why my heart was hard to this prayer, because it's a tough reality, but it's our reality. For years, the world has sold us comfort, and that's our desire, a nice life, bring our kids up well, get them into a good school, have enough money to help them in university, we've got enough money in our pension to retire nicely. But that's not the way of Christ. That's not to say he doesn't bless us, because Emily and I have known his blessing even in the last three months as we've moved to Basingstoke to join Mosaic Church. He's just blessed us in incredible ways. He gave me a job that I didn't deserve and I'm still not qualified for. He gave us a house that we can't afford, but they chose to rent it to us for less. So we know that God blesses us with these good things, with these comforts, because he he knows that, well, he loves us, doesn't he? He's not going to not give us good things. But when things start going south, it's not because God has left. It's because our security was never found in them, because he's given us a treasure that's greater. And though Jesus endured all this suffering, he's now sitting at the right hand of the Father. And we know whenever we go through it, one day I'm going to be up there and Jesus is going to say, this is Cyril. He's my son. And he's going to rule all of eternity with me because he was faithful, because I gave him the gift of faith. I gave him my salvation and he, he loved me and he told other people about me. They were confident they would be with their God. We have a sovereign God. Each day he sends us out with the colour of the gospel in our lives, to speak boldly to anyone who will listen and those who won't. We need to live in a way that draws attention to us, not because we're hateful, not because we put people down, but because we speak the truth in love. And you see here in the passage, when you speak the truth in love, even when you heal people, people come against you. Because the devil is also at work. He's got his people out there, but we've got our God in here. We need to allow the gospel to leak out of our hearts and be a witness on our sleeves for everyone to see. We're not called to look for suffering, but we're not to live in fear of its coming. So I have to ask you today, I have to ask myself, what is God speaking to you about? Who is it that he's putting on your heart? Where is it he wants to send you? Or perhaps, like me, he needs to remind you that this life is not your own. It's not about you. It's been bought and paid for. You belong to someone else. And he's not coming to you with an angry father. He's not accusing you or beating you down. He's not saying be better. He's reminding you of the love Christ has for you. He's reminding you of the pain Christ went through for you. And it's that love that as we grasp, it disarms our hearts. It disarms our selfishness. We look at everything we've ever wanted and we see Christ and we think that really is rubbish compared to you, Jesus. It's that love that meets you with power. Mm. That changes our posture from an inward-looking to an outward-looking one. Mm. It's a love, and it's only his love that helps us die for others, that helps us go and suffer for the sake of others. Even when we don't see fruit, we're willing to lay ourselves down to share the gospel. And you're here in Swindon. You're a lighthouse to those around you. Mm. You're here to bear one another up. You're here for in those troubled times when when the enemy does come against, you're not going to bow your heads and say, we're done. You're going to bow your heads and say, sovereign God, sovereign God, we're here for you. You've placed us here and we're going to fight for you because we know that you've got a purpose for us. We know that you want to bring people in. You know that we're not going to stay as this fellowship. We're going to grow because your gospel is real. Your hope is real. And people need saving. So sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. We bring ourselves to you again. 
Lord, we want you to change us. We want you to reform our hearts. We want you to show us how wonderful you are. And we want you to show us how we're going to serve you. And we know it's not always in dramatic ways, Lord, but it, maybe it's in the small and the steady witness. Give us patience. Give us courage. Give us, give us love for people that are hard to love. Yeah. And Lord, for anyone here that doesn't know you, for anyone here that, that knows of you but, but doesn't know that love, doesn't, hasn't seen you in your glory, Lord, I pray for them, Lord, that you would show them your love. Yeah. You would show them your glory. You would show them your power. And you show them what you made them for, Lord, to be your son or your daughter. In your name, amen.